Welcome to episode 470 with my guest, Wendy Adamson. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck and is filled with tons of filthy, inappropriate jokes. Always terribly timed and awkward. Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, one of our former guests, Maddie McVarish, huge advocate for um, teens who have been the victims of sexual abuse. He walked thousands of miles through Europe a couple of summers ago and actually got laws changed extending the, um, or I should say shortening, what would it be, extending or shortening, um, extending the statute of limitations and sometimes getting rid of them for for victims so that they can find justice no matter how long ago it was that they they did that. Matty uh, himself is a is a victim and he has a new book out that is so it's the he wrote this book because it's the book he could have used when he was struggling as a teenager and it's called the truth that no one tells teenagers 10 facts every teen victim has the right to know and it is it's just a great great book and um i'm going to put a link to that under the show notes for for this episode. And he actually goes by the name Dr. Matthew McFarish now, because uh, he got some degrees since he was on this podcast. And I'm going to take credit for that. Is that selfish of me to do that? I don't care. I want to read something from the love survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself CJ. She writes, I love the feeling of pouring water over the hot rocks in a sauna and feeling the heat wash over you. I love that one too. And that feeling that you've pushed it as much as you can and it's not too hot, but you know, your body's gonna get all those toxins out. I love when something weird is happening in public and you make eye contact with other strangers to confirm that it is indeed weird. I had this experience years ago. I was at a gym and all of a sudden this guy appears and he's not wearing gym shorts. He's wearing white underwear, like the classic white BVDs. And here's the thing that was so bizarre. He has a perfectly manicured mustache and his white BVDs. He's not wearing gym shorts, just white BVDs with a huge pee stain on the front of them. And just as I look at him, I notice somebody else about 10 feet away sees the same thing. (laughs) We both just looked at each other like, am I imagining this or is this really happening? And I just wanted to go up to that guy, the guy with the BVDs and say, maybe devote some of that mustache time to getting that stain out. Back to the survey. She writes, I love trying out a risky new recipe and it fucking rocks. Bonus points if you serve it to someone else and they also love it. I love the feeling of finishing the last to-do on a Friday afternoon, knowing that you have the next two days to relax. Oh, that's so good. I love magically waking up early on a Sunday when the world is still quiet. 
I'm not sure I've ever experienced getting up early enough for that. I love checking the balance in my bank account, expecting the worst, and finding out that I have a few more dollars than I thought. Oh, that's a great one. And I love hearing the mental illness happy hour guests that I vibe with so hard that I pull over on the side of the road so that I can take notes. Well, that's very, very flattering. I want to give a shout out to one of our new sponsors, uh, Early Bird CBD Products. Um, There are a lot of CBD products out there, and there is a huge variation in the quality. And so Early Bird decided to set out and to be kind of a clearinghouse, if you will, for the best quality products. Uh, They test them extensively, and I find that CBD, uh, I take the CBD that has no THC in it, I find that the nighttime gummies that they have helps me sleep like nothing else. Um, So they also have tons of other stuff. They have a a CBD kind of a roll-on stick that you can uh, rub onto joints that are aching, and it can really help uh, with inflammation and pain. But go, go check out their website. And the guy that started it, uh, his name's Justin, just a really good dude. Um, so if you want to know more, just go to earlybirdcbd.com or you can give them a, give them a ring. Uh, the number's on their website and they'd be happy to talk to you and answer any questions that you have. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good deal. It's a good website and, there's nothing like finding something that helps you sleep. And you guys can get 20% off your first order by going to earlybirdcbd.com slash mental and then also use the discode uh, disco. Yeah, put on some platform shoes and fucking let go on the dance floor using the discount code mental for 20% off your first order. Again, that's earlybirdcbd.com slash mental with discode Discount code mental for 20% off your first order. I will put the links to all of this stuff uh, where you could buy Maddie's book or where you can go to Early Bird CBD and, and also a link to our other sponsor for today, our longtime sponsor, betterhelp.com. If you have never tried, I don't know why I emphasize the word never, if you have never tried online counseling, I think you should give it a shot because BetterHelp has a ton of really qualified therapists and the one that I have, I've been with for two years, I talk about her all the time and she is so wise and compassionate and she has a good sense of humor. Uh, she, I just feel so comfortable with uh, with her and she really helps guide me through a lot of awkward growth periods in my in my life. Uh, so if you're interested in trying it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental and make sure you include this slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Doll, and she writes, Quick backstory. I have a strained relationship with my maternal family. My mom was very abusive to me when I was younger, and her emotional abuse escalated when I got into high school. 
She told the rest of her family that I was violent and a runaway and that I wasn't to be trusted. While things have gotten a lot better between me and my mom, and hence most of my maternal family, there's still some tension. One night, my cousin was throwing a party, and I decided to at least come back and say hello. I was already stressed from work and recovering from a two-day hangover when my other cousin pulled me aside where no one could hear us to talk to me about my relationship with my mom. It got emotional very fast with him telling me I should not talk badly about his favorite aunt and me trying to explain that his favorite aunt was my mom and I had a more complicated relationship with her than anyone realized. I started sobbing while everyone watched. My cousin then said, you know, your problem is you're not confident about yourself and you should be. You're a beautiful girl and believe me, if we weren't related, I would totally fuck you. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Wendy Adamson, who is a sober person, a mom, and the author of a new memoir called Mother Load. And I'm going to read a little bit from the jacket of it, which will give you kind of an overview of the stuff that we're going to talk about. Uh, Wendy Adamson has lived many lives, and lucky for us, she's decided to write about them. In her new memoir, Mother Load, Wendy shows us how a little league PTA mom can get dragged down the rabbit hole of methamphetamine when she has a psychotic break, shoots her husband's mistress, and ends up in county jail. After getting released nearly a year later, Wendy has a stroke of luck when she is taken in by a women and children's shelter with her youngest son, Ricky. While staying there, Wendy teeters on the edge of sobriety until she goes to the aid of a young boy who has been shot in a drive-by shooting. This one selfless act will send her life in an entirely different direction. I don't think that's dramatic enough. I'm going to ask you to leave. <laughs> There's a lot of drama. It's drama-packed. And you've been sober a long time now. You've yeah. been sober 20-some years? Yeah, 26 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, where do, let, let's start out by talking about... Do you mind if I ask uh, your age? My age is um, 67. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was your the environment like that you grew up in? Well, I grew up in Santa Monica and uh, went to St. Monica's Catholic School, and we looked good on the outside. But um, behind closed doors, my mother was a schizophrenic, and it was um, she was always trying to kill herself. You know, she was responding to inner voices. And as kids, you know, there was four of us. We often got in her way. You know, um, she was serious about killing herself, and 
um, actually did it when I was seven years old. She um, cut her wrist and drowned in a bathtub, and the and and died and died. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine what a load that is on a on a kid of it, any age. Well, it haunted me. It haunted me, and especially, you know, like the image. I didn't find out the actual way she died until I was a a teenager, but. She pulled um, a trunk full of photographs of her children and her wedding on top of her in the bathtub and drowned under the weight. It was like the image of that, like under the weight of her children, under the weight of her life. And um, I don't think that's metaphorical enough. I, seriously. Holy shit. I know. I know. It's crazy. Wow. So when I... F- was, was she untreated? Well, she went to Camarillo State Hospital, which I would later end up at. Um, She would have shock treatment, stabilized with, or if you could call it stabilized, with Melaril or Thorazine, Mm -hmm. sent back home when she was stable enough to be be mom Mm -hmm. until she either stopped taking meds or had another episode, tried to kill herself, you know, and I mean, when I say she was trying to actively kill herself she was turning on all the gas when the kids were in the house so it was it was dramatic i i you know i grew up you know this is like um when my the architecture my brain is being formed yeah you know the neural pathways and you're on fight flight or freeze constantly and on top of having a genetic predisposition thank you to (laughs) all of that stuff yeah wow that is that is a lot. Uh, why would she go off her meds? Because uh, they just made her too drowsy? I am i don't know. You know, I don't know if she was going off her meds, but I work, you know, I've been working in the clinical field as a drug and alcohol counselor for over 20 years, and I work with adolescents that um, have mental health issues. So I'm kind of assuming that's what would happen. Yeah, that that's the classic case. Yeah. Because they're so sedating, um, most people that live with schizophrenia, well, I shouldn't say most people, but many people um, would prefer to battle the demons of untreated schizophrenia than be in that kind of sedated state. But um, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't know what kind of new drugs are out there. I would imagine every year they're trying to improve um, the quality of, yeah. of drugs. So um, one of the things you said to me before we got on mic was that you swore to yourself you would never become your mother. Yeah, it was like, and you know, that's like giving the universe the exact coordinates to where you're going to land, you know? It's like, because the universe doesn't know the difference between what I want and I what I don't want. It just knows that all my attention is being steered to what I don't want. I don't want to be my mother. I don't want to be my mother. How'd that work out? Well, at 38, she is when she killed herself. And at 38 is when I had this psychotic break that um, the book is about. Um, yes, it was meth induced, uh, classic um, drug psychotic break. But just the same, the irony you know, uh, was not lost on me. I mean, I didn't get it then, but, um, so, so yeah, at 38, I lost. How long had, how long had you been using meth? Were you on an extended meth run? I was on, yeah, that, but meth was not my drug of choice. Okay. So let me just back up for a second and say that, um, you know, my dad didn't want us talking about 
my mother. Mm-hmm. It was like we were like entered into this like conspiracy of silence. Don't talk to the nuns. Don't tell your friends when she was alive. And then he didn't tell us how she died. And and it was later, like I said, when I found out. How, how did, did she, she? How did he say that she died? She said she had a he had a she had a heart attack. Okay. Okay. So, so you know when you're like. Um, told not to talk about something and we didn't go to the funeral and we didn't grieve and we didn't process that kind of trauma goes somewhere it's stored in the body absolutely you know and so when i first started drinking i was young you know experimenting with pot drinking lsd pills uppers downers you name it i was i was Mm -hmm. self-medicating you know there was nobody going this girl needs a therapist she needs help what can we do for her you know, so I was like on survival mode. I think that when you have a parent that kills themselves, that is always like an option. That's imprinted. It's like imprinted in your consciousness. Yeah. And how old were you when you had kids? Um, I was 22 with my first son and 30 with my second son. Okay. Okay. So, so I'm self-medicating, you know, and I'm completely unconscious of like what's going on. I'm so shut down. I'm so repressed because everything's been a secret. We haven't talked about it. Um, so alcohol was your drug of choice? Alcohol was my first drug of choice. And then I used drugs alcoholically, Great. you know, yeah. I, I graduated. I did classic garbage can garbage kid. That's yeah. me. Yeah. Yep. That was me, me too. That's yeah. how I was. Yeah. I did just about everything. I remember being in a parking lot after a stand-up comedy show and I was wearing a suit and I found myself standing among a group of people. I had no idea who they were and they passed me a can that they were huffing and I just, I did it. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to be me. Sure. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I, you know, I remember people like, you know, giving, having a pill in their hand and handing it to me. And I never asked what it was. I would just take it out of their hand. Thanks so much Mm -hmm. and pop it in my mouth. And then let's see what happens. It's so funny too, when people get sober and then they, you know, they're, they're, if they're in some type of support group, that's like, you know, you need to believe in something greater than yourself. Somebody said one time, uh, to to somebody in the program who was struggling to just kind of surrender to the universe and you know trusting and this this person said to to the newbie uh you put your trust in people that were handing you pills that you didn't know them and you, and you just took them exactly yeah it's like you know whatever it took to alter myself to not feel you know what i was feeling it didn't matter up down i mean i preferred kind of down you know but yeah. i i'd go either way and were you an isolator when you were loaded or were you sociable not very sociable it was like me my husband and my kids mm-hmm. and this kind of little bubble that we created and you know like a, a lot of addicts uh and alcoholics they start isolating so i would say the family unit isolated you know, but um, uh, we were, you know, trying to do things like normal families, go to Disneyland, Little League games, and, you know, do all of that, barbecues, you know, swimming in the pool, you know. So it was like trying to hold on to that thread of uh, normalcy 
when so, everything was unraveling. And were you able to present uh, yourself? Or were people aware, uh, your kids, people outside? Because I'm sure your husband knew that you were abusing well, alcohol. he was abusing, too. I mean, he was, okay. yeah, an addict, too. So um, my older son, I think, well, there's an eight-year gap. I think he was more conscious of it than my, my younger son, Ricky. Um, so he claims he didn't realize what was going on, my youngest son. Um, but I think that he did just like I knew something was going on as a child. You, you sense it, you feel it, you know, you feel the way you're, you know, my dad would walk in the house, you know, how he went to the bar and how the ice clicked against the glass. I, I could tell what kind of mood he was in, you know? And I was, so, you know, that, like I said, those neural pathways um, that were like always listening, always listening for cues, mm-hmm. you know, always scanning, always looking like, am I safe? Is my mom okay? Who, who, you know, who's going to be there when I get home today? Because that's another thing is like when your mother is having psychotic breaks and you get home, and you're like, who's, who's there? You know, and when she would have these breaks, it almost like something evil would crawl up inside her. Can can you give me a, a an example that you remember of one of her psychotic breaks, if you, if you can? Well, I think the one thing that I, you know, I mean, there were multiple situations where they would fight. I would remember my mom and dad fighting a lot. Um, and I would be scared in, in my room, hiding in my room with my sister. And it was almost like, you know, we were all scared and we didn't know like what was happening. We didn't have the cognition or the brain capacity to process. So um, this one night they got in a fight and my dad, uh, you know, definitely an alcoholic. I mean, Mm -hmm. my point of view, he went to the bar, he stormed off to the bar and that's the night that um, she, well, one of the nights she um, turned on all the gas in the house closed all the windows. And my dad was a smoker. He smoked camels. He smoked Kent. And he would tell the housekeeper later on in years that he came home that night. And luckily, he put the cigarette out on the porch under his foot. And when he walked in, the house was like full of gas. So my memory of that is a vague kind of dreamy kind of state of being on the front lawn. And because the firemen came and took Mm -hmm. us outside. And um, just shame, uh, just seething shame, because now the neighbors know. Now the neighbors know what's going on. People are, are looking out their windows or, you know, it's just like the secret that my dad didn't want us to talk about was exposed. And what would ultimately be my dad's solution was to move to another neighborhood to get us into another school. So let's just run. Let's just run away from all of that. Let's start fresh, you know, but it's the same family system. It's like system. the Catholic Church. Let's not deal with the problem. Right. Let's just hide it. Let's hide it. Yeah. Do you ever think about your mom turning the gas on and think, wow, she didn't care if she took us with her? I, yeah, I did. I used to, I blamed my mom and my dad. You know, because when I was getting sober, 
the only language I spoke was Vietnamese. Right. You know? And I've never heard that before. I like that. It's true. Yeah. It's like I, everything, like, why did this happen to me? It was my mother's fault, my father's fault. Now it's my ex-husband, my husband's fault because he's cheating on me. It's everybody else's fault. But what I, you know, what I realize is that... But as know, a kid, you really are a victim. You are a victim. You yeah. are totally a victim. But I still didn't know what was going on in ways like I was getting like snapshots or piecemeal parts of it. And the puzzle kind of came together when our housekeeper, our Irish housekeeper, Irene, uh, said to me around 13 or 14 that I think you need to know how your mom died. You know, uh, your dad didn't want you to know because he thought you were too young, but I think you and your sister need to know. She told me and my sister, Diane, so that felt like a huge betrayal. And but all the pieces slotted in together. Oh, we moved. Oh, okay, that's why. And then we lost all contact with my cousins on my mother's side. We never talked to my my grandparents on my mother's side. So dad took us my dad took us into this self-imposed exile, you know, his exile from the family cuz the family I think were angry at him because like I said they would fight. And um, in any case... Um, did you then become angry at him when you found out the truth? Yeah, yeah. And did you confront him? I confronted him. I How acted he out. He, uh, he was very defended, you know. I was uh, trying to protect you. Uh, no? I can't remember the exact conversation. I know that um, I'm, my next book is like, should be called Father Load because I'm writing... Um, our relationship as when I was a teenager, you know, with him. So I'm kind of exploring that. But mine was more acting out defiance. You know, I started running away from home. I was started uh, getting arrested for incorrigible, going to juvenile hall. Um, what does what getting arrested for being incorrigible sound like? Um, well, or what it look like? Well, running away, getting high, drinking alcohol, okay. taking second all. Do you know, have you ever heard of second all? Second all, two and all. Uh, two I and grew all? up in the yeah, 70s. Yeah, well, okay then. Yeah. <laughs> so, Roar 714. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Loads, all of that. Yeah. So um, so I was, you know, I was, a, I was a handful. I was a handful. I, you know, and again, I'm unconscious. I'm very unconscious. You're uh, just in survival mode. I'm in survival mode. With and some then, shitty coping mechanisms. Yeah. No coping and and no impulse control. So you know, I end up in the in the system, you know. And um, so yeah, that's kind of the you know the the drugs and alcohol gave me a way to metabolize my feelings. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going on, you know. And if this is the problem, if my brain is the problem, I can't fix the problem. Like with the problem, with the problem, yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's taken a lot of work and a lot of recovering that, you know, girl that I abandoned. I think that when you start drinking, there's a part of you that is abandoning yeah. yourself. It kind of freezes emotionally at that age. Exactly. Exactly. So let's fast forward to the marriage, unless we're skipping over anything no. that you'd like to, to talk about. You're, you're, it's not a great marriage. You're 
husband is actively drinking and you find out that he's cheating or what happens? Well, so, okay. Um, you know, we had been doing methamphetamine, both of us. And um, needless to say, it's a drug. One of the side effects is paranoia. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, given that kind of atmosphere, he would score for this girl or other people, but he was this girl that would come over, um, you know, and a lot. And she'd come over and it was late at night and she wanted a gram. And so he went to the dealers to get a gram because he was going to get a cut of it. Mm -hmm. And um, so my youngest son's asleep. My oldest son is um, staying at a friend's house. And I'm like tweaking, you know. Do you know Do you know what I read is the definition of tweaking? You find this interesting in the Urban Dictionary. Um, tweaking comes from the term like... Uh, speed freaks used to stay up for two weeks straight, right? Mm -hmm. So they would say, oh, he's a two-weeker. Oh, and really? And then, then they shortened it to tweaker because he oh. could stay up. He's a two-weeker. He's been doing a two-weeker run. I had no idea. I always thought it was like twitching, you know, because it starts with TW. I don't know. I that's know. just what, what well, I always thought. Well, that's what the Urban Dictionary says. So, yeah. you know, that I don't know how, you know, if it's accurate, but I thought that was an interesting thing. So I was tweaking and... um you know, it's like when you have a psychotic break, you're the last one to know, you know? It's, <laughs> it's such a great... It's like you're... Yes. It's, it's like I was like... Same I, with mania. Yeah. Yeah, you're in the mania and you're just like... Mm. I feel great. Yeah. I finally feel what? the way I want to feel. Yeah, what? Thank why you. isn't everybody else on board? Mind your own business. Yeah. Well, let's forget about my credit card bill. <laughs> yeah. I always wanted to have a piano. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I, it hits me like that he's cheating on me because they're gone for a long time. Johnny Carson's on TV. I go, what the hell? Where are they? And it hits me. He's cheating on me. And it's like, uh, you know, we, I, I, I just like lost it. I like my, and my solution, my, was to go take a hit of speed, amp myself up some more. That's mm -hmm. a really good solution. <laughs> You know, but I, I had this idea, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll scare him. You know, I, th I, th I thought that would be a good way to keep my man, get the gun out of the, get the gun out, scare the shit out of him. He's not going to leave me. I've given him the best years of my life, you know, and all of this crazy thinking. Okay. But, and I paced back and forth waiting for them to get back from the dealers. And when he pulled up, he was driving her car looking for a parking space. And I ran outside and fired over the car trying to scare them. And, you know, I mean, this is all in the book. You know, I go into, this is where the book starts, basically, you know, with the night of the shooting. And so, um, so I ended up firing another shot that ricocheted on the the roll bar of the car. It was uh, El Camino, and it went into her arm. It went through her arm, and uh, so. In any case, like I am staying there with this this the smoking gun mm -hmm. in the middle of the street, you know, and uh, he's driving away with the other woman. You know, my idea of keeping my man didn't work. <laughs> So I thought, well, I better change my clothes in case the cops come and I get put in a lineup. This is my thinking. Oh, my God. This is my thinking. This is like, 
you know, my best thinking, as they say. So I run inside, I change into my, you know, other clothes, and the cops come, and I'm hauled off to jail. And so, you know, the long and the short of it is um, uh, I go to jail, I get assault with a deadly weapon, and... Um, and you're put in county? I'm county? first, yeah, I, I was Sybil Brand back then. Right. It was Sybil Brand. Um, Inglewood? Um, no, it's uh, Boyle Heights, I think. Oh, Sybil okay. Brand's. Yeah, but there, yeah, they have a, that place is closed now. I you know, you. this was the early '90s, so this was a long time ago. Um, so you know, assault with a deadly weapon, you know, and I'm blaming once again somebody else. I'm speaking that language of victimese. Mm -hmm. It's his fault. And did you, you make bail, or were you stuck? No, in jail? I was stuck in jail. No one was bailing you. Yeah. I had burned you, I, all my bridges, Paul. <laughs> after you finish your thought, I want to know what county was like. Well, okay. Well, county, um, well, I can tell you, like, county was um, it was a dark, cold experience uh, with very little compassion uh, coming f from the authorities. Uh, you're, everybody's treated like... I feel like animals mm -hmm. um, back in the '90s, anyway. And, um, and were you in a, a like a large dorm? A or? dorm. Yeah. Yeah, I was put in a large dorm, and um, so like fifty people in bunk beds, that kind yeah, of deal. It seemed more like a hundred because yeah. there was two sides to the dorm with a uh, a thing, an island that ran down the middle, and more bunk beds in the middle. That on both sides of the the, the island, and um, you know the thing that is like I remember most about doing the time initially, and most of the time is my heart was like completely broken. I should say that he um, ended up moving her into the house after I was gone. Oh my God! So I I got wind of this through um, calling a friend. And um, so my heart was broken. I'd been with him. I'd stumbled into with him at 16. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I knew that, you know, this is like jail. I got it, you know, and I had like grown up like um, pulling out personalities out of the Rolodex and becoming those personalities for every, any given situation, mm -hmm. you do the same thing in jail. You don't let anybody, I didn't let anybody see me cry. You know, I was like holding my mud. You know, it's like, it's like, but meanwhile, you're, you're collapsing internally and you're trying to hold that persona so that people don't see you as weak or they won't take advantage of you. And, and did people try? Not really, you know, um, I had done time before, so I mean, it was like not my first rodeo. I love the idea of a PTA mom with a rap sheet. <laughs> yes. It's so fantastic. <laughs> yeah, little league mom and yeah. yeah. So then you get sentenced to prison, a year in prison. Jail. It was jail. Oh, so jail. They, they offered me a plea bargain of prison or jail. I kind of held out for jail. Because um, jail was good time, work time with the prison thing they were offering mm -hmm. me was with a lid on it, mm -hmm. which means I would do the entire time. Yeah. So two years with a lid on it meant you're going to do two years in, in state prison. Then you're going to get out and you're going to have a three-year tail. Okay. Here comes all Probation. my- Probation. 
Yeah. 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 This is all my jailhouse lingo. Yeah. See, you know, <laughs> I don't get to use it very often. Thank yeah. you, Paul, for inviting me yes. there. <laughs> Walk in the yard, caught Walk a in case. The yard. Yeah. Yeah. Holding your own, man. Yeah. My road dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, if you had been a person of color, what do you think your sentence would have been? Um, I, I think that, um, so let me just say why I got the sentence I got Sure, is they wouldn't testify. Okay. They didn't want to testify. Okay. So that kind of like a weak case. All right. Um, I think people of color are, uh, more targeted, uh, than I was talking to somebody. It's interesting. You bring this up. I was talking to somebody earlier that, um, I really, um, empathize with, you know, how, um, you know, people of color are targeted by the police, you know, and I given much more extreme sentences. Yeah. And, um, when I was in jail, I kind of, you know, I experienced being treated like an animal and I just like, I, when I got out of jail, I've got white skin. I can disappear and, you know, never experience that. I can shut the door on that, you know, completely. But it's like, I really felt the, um, you know, what they must experience is like from the police when Mm -hmm. you're a marginalized, like, uh, you know, people of color and, um, you know, my son is, both my sons are half Hispanic and one, you know, looks like, you know, he could even be uh, Middle Eastern and he, you know, he, he's experienced that, you know, mm-hmm. he runs, he has a nonprofit now, I'll tell you about a little bit later, but he gives out shoes. It's called Have a Soul, S-O-L-E. Mm-hmm. And um, he was in Charlotte and his his partner, his manager is black and they were preparing the shoes in the back of the van, uh, to give out to a a homeless shelter when the cops just came guns drawn, you know, pointed to my son's head through the, um, his friend against, you know, the van handcuffed him, put him in the car. And it was like, you know, they, automatically assumed they were robbing this van with shoes. But when the story unfolded, they were preparing the shoes to give them away to homeless people, you know? And it's just like they have been profiled so many times uh, going across country when they're doing such good work. It's just, it's, it's disheartening. So you um, spend how much time a year in jail? Two years? I know a year I, and I got out with good time, work time. So I got sentenced to a year and out. So, um, yeah. So what's the next thing that, that happens? You get out, obviously you're divorced at at this point. I'm not divorced technically, but we'll say separated. Uh, the bloom uh, is off the rose. It's off the rose completely. The petals have shriveled. Um, so, um, I had nowhere to go. You know, and there, another thing about the county jail, there's no reentry system. There's no, you're not talking to a case manager, a counselor, or anybody inquiring of what are, what are you going to do? How can we help support you so you don't have to come back here and spend more taxpayers' money and just clog up the system? Okay. Right. 
So, you know, there's, when I was there, there was no, not even any drug programs in place. And that's since changed. I see. Uh, you mean reentering society. Reentering society. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's like, I think it would be very helpful if, if they had a re, a counselor and resources. Well, here you can do this here. You can do that. Um, you know, like I was fortunate enough. I started going to self-esteem classes because women in jail needs a little self-esteem. Yeah. So I went to self-esteem classes in this woman, Candy Diamato, who was involved in a woman's organization and would sometimes sponsor women. You know, if they, if she thought, well, this person really seems like they want to change. So on the DL, you know, she pulled me aside and said that she would pick me up the day I got released. And she had, we talked about, you know, my situation, my family and uh, my, my young, my older boy is in juvenile hall, right? Mm -hmm. He's in juvenile hall. So like, you know, we were talking about earlier is that the intergenerational trauma, I followed in my mother's footsteps. My older son is now following in my footsteps. You know, this kind of what is left on... Back, back then or right now, your older son is... No, back then. Okay. Back then. So this was this was when, you know, th this was the beginning of me waking up, if and, you will. And at that time, had you any idea the trauma you'd caused your children? And how, if so, how did you feel about it? Oh, I felt... Horrible. I mean, it was like, um, I was guilt, you know, I was like, that's the mother load, you know, that's part of the mother load is carrying that guilt. Not even, you know, the trauma from my mother is being passed down to my sons. I have no idea. Like, I'm don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it any different. I have no role models of mothers that have done it differently. So how could I know? But I'm blaming myself. And, you know, when I was... And were you still actively using at that point? No. Okay. No. So okay. I am trying to get sober when I get out. The woman, the Candy Diamato, takes mm -hmm. me to a place, a women's and children's transition house. And um, I am, like, wanting it, but I'm feeling terminally unique, and this will never happen to me. And, mm -hmm. like... You don't understand my problems. You don't come from where I, the trauma. Oh, let me, you know. And again, I'm not one to talk. You know, I suffer from the snitch concept. So I'm not telling people that are around me that like what's going on. I'm, I can't ask for help. I can't ask for help, you know. And, and do you uh, think it was because you were too proud or because you didn't believe help was going to work or you had too much shame? What what was holding you back? Well, the shame is like to talk about this. Okay. To talk about this is like, um, it's a hard subject to approach. And, you know, I dive into it in the book. It's like, you know, because everybody's got their judgments. Oh my God, she's a bad mother and everything. But what about the, you know, the mothers that, um, that feel there is no hope, feel there's no way they've hurt their children or their children have hurt their parents and there's no way to recover and heal that rift. Well, there's, you know, there's a, a ripple effect from drinking and using. There's a ripple effect from getting sober and recovery. And that ripple effects goes positive, out. Positive. Positive. Ripples, yeah. Positive affected the whole family system. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I could say, 
And I did say, trust me, I'm sorry, you guys. I'm really sorry. And I'm really, really sorry. How many times could I say that? I had to show them that, you know, by my behavior, that I was not going to abandon them, that I was not going to leave them, that I was going to be the same, you know, and, and mind you, I'm feeling incredible guilt, incredible remorse for all of it. And wanting everything to be better immediately. But, you know, it took time. Oh, yeah. Rebuilding trust it takes years sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes never with with people. But uh, in, in my experience of those close to me, uh, seeing them get sober, uh, so often they do get their families back. And their families do then trust them. I I know so many people who were terrible, terrible fathers, and then they got sober. And years later, they're they're the person their kids go to when they have a problem, which is just amazing to me. It's amazing. And that's, that's why I wanted to write the book. I wanted to write the book for those people that feel there's no hope, that they've destroyed their family, that they, that they feel there's no way out. I wanted to write for the women that are in locked up in jail that have no examples of women that have come out the other side. I wanted to write it for the girls in juvenile hall that have like, you know, just dysfunctional families, crazy families, you know, and every time where I wanted to shut down, I go, I don't want to do this. I don't want to expose myself. I would think about those people. If when I was in jail, like the only thing I can get my hands on was the rise and fall of the Third Reich, you know, and it was like, I didn't have examples. Yeah. I didn't have examples. I do now. I do now. So, so what changed? What was the pivotal moment for inner change for you? Well, the pivotal moment, I don't want to go all into it because it's in the book and it's, it's a spiritual experience when that boy dies. Um, I have a spiritual experience. Which, which boy? Um, I, when I was living at the transitional mm-hmm. living house, um, one night I heard four gunshots and this boy about 19 years old is laying in the street. Um, it's, I was at that time I was living at 11th and Pico. Are you familiar with that? Santa Mm -hmm. Monica. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was the first selfless act I ever did without an agenda. I've done things for people, but always wanted something, always had some agenda. This was the first selfless act. I didn't want anything from that boy. I just knew he was hurting. He was dying. And he was laying in the street. It was Mother's Day, by the way, you know, and he's laying face down in the street. He had and you, taken. And, and you didn't know him. I didn't know him. Okay. And okay. He had taken. He had taken four shots. Right. All right. So I don't know if it was because I was starting to develop a conscious conscience by then. I don't know if it was because um, I couldn't. I just wanted to. I don't know what it was, but and, I went. And you had been sober for a little bit then? Yeah, I or? mean, I was, but when you say sober, I mean, this physically was. Physically sober. Physically. Not, not yeah, emotionally or not, spiritually. Yeah, I was like, I was, you know, I was like hanging around. Gotcha. Okay. So I went to this boy and um, the police, when they ended up getting there, they thought I was his mother. And uh, 
you know, until they figured out I wasn't his mother. And then they asked me and got me, got me behind the line. But I stayed with that kid and was like, you know, all I can say is that uh, time slowed down. Uh, I felt extremely present. Like it was surreal, like extremely, I'm on my knees next to this kid rubbing his back and I'm just going, hang in there, hang in there. And it was like, never had I wanted somebody just like live, just don't, you know, please, you know, it was like, this was somebody's child lit on the street. Was he responding to you at all? No, he was, I mean, he was breathing still, but it was a rattle, you know? So, um, when the police got me behind the line, what does that mean? The yellow line. Oh, okay. The, um, when they made, I felt like I was, I can't, I didn't want to leave him. You know, I felt very connected to him, the strange boy and the, mm-hmm. the unconscious boy. I felt like I really just felt connected to him. And that night, uh, later on, I was like gripped kind of by panic attack and uh, for lack of a better word, just anxiety. And when I was trying to sleep, um, a presence came in the room, you know, and it was, uh, that you felt physically. Oh yeah. I can, felt just, it. If, can you describe what it was that you felt? Well, okay. So I am laying on the floor next to my youngest son, Ricky's bed. And, um, it came down like from the ceiling and I, you know, it entered like my chest and it filled me with a feeling of peace. And so let me just say that I was anxious one second and I feel this absolute peace wash over me like I'd never experienced, ever experienced in my life. I haven't felt that kind of peace since, but it was enough to, it told me, it trans, it downloaded, if you will. Right. Everything is all right. Everything has always been all right and everything is all right you don't need to be afraid. You know, it was like unbelievable. And it left, you know, whatever that presence was. And so that experience, I didn't know, was that God? Was that the boy that came? Was, what was that? What was that? What was that? I didn't know. And I still don't know, obviously. But what I do know is that by being of service to another suffering human being, I had a profound transformation. That is when things, you know, gelled for me and everything, you know, by being of service to another human being. I, I concluded inevitably, not initially, but over time that we are here for one another. People are here for one another, but we get so caught up in selfishness. So like, I want this, you know, that we forget. You forget. And sometimes the most profound experiences of connection are between one person suffering and another person suffering. And I I wonder if uh, in some way you, even though your backgrounds were probably different and his suffering was different from yours, it was still two people in the midst of suffering. Yeah. And, you know, 
what if, just what if he, what if that was like what he came here to do? You know, what if he can't, what if that was his spirit that came to me to thank me for being there for him as he lay dying? What if that, what if that is the truth? I try to remember thing that attitude sometimes when things are difficult and I'm scared and I feel like it's all over, you know, I've blown it or I made some huge mistake and I and I think what if this is just part of a larger picture that I don't understand and to be of service to humanity, I need to have this difficult moment and I don't understand how it fits into the larger picture, but what if this is part of a larger plan that, you know, yeah. this is, this is my, my time to, to struggle. Right. Well, uh, when I, when that happened, after that happened, I asked the universe or consciousness, a higher power, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, for other opportunities to be of service. So um, I started talking in juvenile halls. I started going to juvenile halls and talking to the girls in there. So these these are the same juvenile halls I was as a kid, as a lost kid. So when I went in there and told them, you know, my experience, it was like I could, you know, see that all of this happened because the broken parts in me could reach the broken parts in them. Mm -hmm. They listened to me. They did listen to me. They related. I have had profound experiences where a girl would grab me at the end and just telling me, I, th I think I'm an addict or I think I'm an alcoholic. And it's like, it's like that connection, that connection to me. Then it's like, I'm no longer speaking victimese. Mm -hmm. Everything that happened to me happened for a purpose, happened for a reason. But if I'm, if I'm keeping it a secret, like my dad wanted us to do, like I was raised to do, then it's, it's, it's no, it's not a tool. It's only a tool if I take it out and use my experience and tell others and go, this is what it was like for me. And this is like what it's like now, you know, and it's ta-da, it's so much different, you know. Um, one thing I want to share about is like living in that transitional house. Um, I was on welfare when I, cause I was like unemployable, didn't know what it's going to do. And I couldn't afford to buy my son a pair of shoes. Right. And this woman, this woman, Becky bought my son. She was an alumni of the transitional herself and bought him two pairs of shoes. Okay. So he loved them. We appreciated, you know, it's like one act of kindness. So he, but due to his deprivation, he became a sneakerhead. He started collecting all kinds of shoes. All right. So fast forward, he's in his early thirties. We've done a lot of healing on our relationship. I've done a lot of healing with my older boy. He's my older son. Jerry's doing great. Ricky's doing struggling. He's like having this crisis and he's got 150 pairs of shoes stacked in his bedroom from like from floor to ceiling and he can't sleep. He's like, it's not drugs and alcohol, but it's like girls and you know, like what's my purpose? What's my right. purpose? And he looks over at those shoes and he thinks about Becky, you know, and how those two new pairs of shoes made him feel. And he's got 150 pairs of shoes. He only wears five of them and he decides to give them away. So he 
loads up his car the next day as Ford Explorer and drives the streets of LA and finds somebody that can benefit from a pair of shoes. He posts that on Instagram and you know, pretty soon it takes off. He starts a nonprofit. I, I'm involved, very much involved with that uh, nonprofit, Have a Soul. And okay, so, the, so he, you know, people love it. And we're, mm-hmm. soon Nike is sending us shoes. And, you know, it's just like we're getting more and more support. And here we are five and a half years later, and we've given out 20,000 pairs of shoes. We get a supply, a stream of Nikes coming from store, a uh, shoes coming from all over LA. We've, you know, LA Clippers uh, Foundation has recently um, given us some support. So all of this kind of like this, this terrible thing that happened, like us living on welfare, you know, in in a transitional uh, living environment, one woman was kind. Now, Becky didn't give him those shoes thinking, Oh, well, one day he's going to give out $20,000. But that impacted him. The ripples. That impacted him, and he never forgot. It took two decades for him to pass it forward, mm-hmm. but he he is. And, you know, here we could have been a sad statistic. Freeze frame, the women and children's house, welfare, you know, one son in juvenile hall, one son getting into trouble, you know, homeless we were homeless you know unemployable so you it's like don't ever write anybody off and everybody that we meet out there you know and we do a lot of um youth we do a lot of um underprivileged youth um at risk youth homeless youth but they've all got a story hmm. they've all got a story finding one's purpose in life is I think the the best thing that that you can ever experience the the peace and the slowing down of the mind in a good way yeah uh, is can be profound and it it I mean it takes in my experience it takes work to keep it there yeah and yeah. to to feel it but you know, sometimes it comes and goes, but when it's there and it's good, it's better than any drug. Yeah, I believe that. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on. Your your book is called Mother Load, and people can get it. Uh, I'll, I'll put links on the, the website to it, but j- briefly, where can... Amazon. Be, Amazon. Amazon. Okay. Mother Load, L-O-A-D. Yeah. And, um, yeah... Or follow a Have a Soul as well on Instagram. At Have a Soul, S-O-L-E. H-A-V-A-S-O-L-E. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks so much, Paul. I just love hearing somebody's story and them turning their life around and finding purpose and finding a success that has nothing to do with money but about meaning and and feeling a part of uh, the universe. I just love it. I'm going to just dive right into some surveys. If you guys are new to the podcast and you've never gone to the website and filled out surveys, uh, there's about a dozen different ones that you can fill out. Um, and maybe I'll read your survey on the air. Some of them are just so fascinating. And I have a bunch of shame and secret surveys uh, today. I got some loves, got an awful some moment. 
This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself water bearer. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My mother would discuss her her dissatisfaction with my father's sexual performance since before I can remember. I've always known what sex is to some degree because of this. I don't remember any one point in my life where I learned about sex. I also do not remember when I began masturbating. It was definitely before four years old, though. I don't think there's anything wrong with this inherently, i.e., I don't want to perpetuate the myth that girls don't and shouldn't explore their bodies as children, but the fact that I don't remember an actual discovery process makes me think something traumatic happened. I also know that I always knew masturbation should happen in private and I should not discuss it with anyone makes me think that this is what some adult abuser told me. I had no sense of boundaries as I began becoming sexually active as a teenager. I thought I always had to say yes if that's what someone else wanted and when I was 18 I was raped by my girlfriend at the time. Writing that sentence is the first time I've really accepted that what she did was rape. Cultural conditioning really purports this idea that women cannot be abusers. It makes it so much harder for those of us who have, those of us who have been abused by women to accept it. I have vaginismus and my ex-girlfriend raped me because she, quote, couldn't wait any longer. I had just had surgery to remove excess hymenal tissue and then in parentheses, so fun, LOL. So she figured the, pe- the penetration problem, quote, uh, I was having should be fixed. She gave me a Xanax, which I said yes to because I felt pressured to at least try to relax so she could have what she wanted. When she started fingering me, it hurt like fuck, and I told her to stop. She insisted that the Xanax would kick in at any moment, and then I'd enjoy it. I just gave up and accepted what she did to me for the rest of the night despite the pain. I am so sickened writing that. I'm glad that I got out of her life, and I'm now learning that I have a right to place my own boundaries. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. My mother hit me throughout my childhood. I don't remember when it started. It stopped when I was around 10. She would often use belts and hangers. I would go to school with bruises and lie, saying I'd fallen off my scooter or some bullshit. My mom told me that if I ever said a word, I would get taken away to a foster home that would hurt me even more than she did. Even when the physical abuse stopped, she continued to emotionally terrorize me and endanger my safety in other ways. Her screaming fits could come at any time, sometimes while she was driving and she would drive like a maniac. I remember feeling scared for my life in situations like that several times. The ex-girlfriend was uh, the same. Oh, the same ex-girlfriend was emotionally abusive to the nth degree. Both she and my mom are Sagittarius. Weird how we seek out our abusers. I don't know anything really about uh, zodiac signs, so I am not going to weigh in on that. Uh, and she manipulated me throughout our relationship, very controlling about what I did and who I hung out with. She didn't want me to dye my hair because she, quote, liked me when I looked natural. She would freak out on me if I didn't text her for a few hours. She would never respect me when I told her to be cautious about revealing our relationship in front of my mom. Because of comments she made, my mom eventually figured out I was dating the girl she thought was just my best friend and threatened to disown me. 
This happened as I was moving to college, literally in the car, moving to my dorm, LOL, and I was scared as shit to lose my parents' financial support. I lied and said I would comply and, quote, become straight and leave my girlfriend just to get my parents to pay for college. God, that's so fucked up. While I was with my ex, I was binge drinking heavily and would usually black out with her. The next morning, she would always have stories of terrible things I did. It started out just embarrassing, then escalated where she said I had hit her and raped her. In parentheses, this was before she raped me. I genuinely believed that I had done these things at the time. I genuinely believed that I had done these things at the time and felt like a terrible human. I now think that those things I would never do no matter how intoxicated I was and mostly believe that she was lying. Part of me is still scared she wasn't. Thanks for the mind fuck and fuck you, Christina. My girlfriend's name is Christina. And I have to assume that is the same Christina. And I am very disappointed in her. A bit... uh, in all seriousness, this is some heavy, heavy shit, man. Positive experiences with the abusers. Yes, mom can be incredibly kind and attentive. I have fond mem- memories of shopping with her, going to the movies, ordering takeout, and watching Gilmore Girls. It's so hard to reconcile these with the terrible things she did. And that is the mind fuck of the complicated relationship with a family member or anybody is people are so complicated and people can be dark and light in the sometimes in the same moment darkest thoughts i have unwanted thoughts about violence and rape these mostly happen when i'm in a depressive episode but are rarely present when i'm on the upswing often they're about me committing a mass murder suicide darkest secrets. This feels silly and not that serious, but it's the the only thing that comes to mind at the moment. While riding my bike, I hit a car's side mirror. The car was at a red light. I hit it with my handlebar. My immediate instinct was to offer to pay for it, but I was hesitant to interact with a clearly furious person. The woman proceeded to call me a dumb Chinese bitch. After that, I rode off without feeling bad about it. I view it as proactive karma, LOL. I've never told anyone this, though I feel like it makes me look like a bad person. I don't really know. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Coercive sex makes me feel gross. Spanking. I feel like that one's common, so I don't feel gross about it. Funny how I need to feel normal to feel validated. I think that's so common for us to want to be quote-unquote normal when it comes to the things we do, the things that turn us on, our feelings, all of that stuff. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Mama, Dad, fuck you for making my childhood a living hell. Christina, fuck you. You fucking raped me. I feel like I can't say these things to them because that would make me mean, bitter, and vindictive. Uh, I also think there are ways that, that especially if we've processed something and and some of the rage gets, I don't know, some of the intensity taken out of it. And sometimes we can have conversations where we speak our truth to somebody else, we confront them, but it's not clouded with seething rage. Um, because a lot of times people don't hear us 
when when we're really, really in an agitated state. Um, but ultimately, I, I, I don't think it matters as much what they what they hear or how they react doesn't matter as much as you claiming your own truth and your own voice and doing what you feel that you need to do. But I think it's good to work with a support group or a therapist to, I don't know, kind of collect your thoughts before you go into an intense conversation if you're going to confront somebody. What, if anything, do you wish for? The ability to get mundane chores done. Oh, my God. Boy, do I relate to that. I currently have a stack of moldy dishes in the sink that have been chilling for at least two months. You know, it's nice when you see dishes chill. They're, they, they're a hectic day. You know, they're called out for breakfast, called out for lunch. They don't, a lot of times, they don't get in a nap. They're called in for dinner. Just when they think their day's over, some motherfucker has a snack. But then, then, when they're lucky enough to have an owner who's hugely depressed, they get to chill in that sweet, sweet sink for two months. In Europe, dishes get mandatory eight weeks to chill in a multi sink. <laughs> Have you shared these things with others? Not really. I've been seeing a therapist for several years, but find it really hard to open up about this stuff. My boyfriend knows some things. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good. I feel like I've made a little bit of sense out of a chaotic experience in life. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's okay, and it's not your fault. Thank you so much, man. You you went so deep in that one. And I would really love for you to go that deep with your therapist and let your therapist help you. I mean, it's the whole reason therapists go to, through all the training that they do, is they they want to be there for somebody through the painful things, the complicated things. And, but I get it. It's hard sometimes when we're filled with shame or we're just afraid it's going to be too intense to even open that door and start talking about something. But I'm sending you some love. And speaking of love, this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Cabo. She writes, I love setting an alarm for 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning so that when it wakes me up, I know I don't need to get up. That There should be a word for that. Getting up early and getting to go to back to sleep, especially when you've got a dog cuddling with you. And, and she writes, then I can cuddle with my amazingly puffy microfiber duvet for as long as I like in a semi-conscious state until my body is ready to wake up gently. Duvet, dog, cat, anything. You got to have something in bed. This is another shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself just staring at the blinking cursor. 
she identifies as a woman, but writes, uh, I don't really feel feminine. She identifies as asexual, and she says, but I'm not sure by choice. Also, I might be slightly bi, but it also doesn't feel completely right. Weirdly, I haven't missed sex that much in the last 13 years, and when I was young, I was very sexually active with boys. I did try a girl once, but it felt weird. Uh, She just turned 50, and she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been sexually abused? Uh, She writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was cornered in a storage room in the basement of an apartment building when I was 11 by another boy around my age. He was advancing on me and trying to hold my arms back. I, I I did both fight and flight and managed to get away. I was scared by the experience and told my older brother, who then went over to the boy's apartment and proceeded to beat the shit out of the boy's older brother. I remember feeling both scared and ashamed that I had caused such violence. Prior to that, there were also weird adult males that I vaguely remember not being comfortable with when they wanted me to sit on their knee. I remember one guy liked to stroke my hair, which I hated. That is so creepy. That is so creepy. Uh, She's been physically and emotionally abused. My mother was diagnosed bipolar after my father died in a house fire. In parentheses, we were in the house with my father. She was not. Long story. Her sister was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and had been in hospitals and institutions on and off. When I heard your episode on emotional neglect, it knocked the wind out of me. Uh, For those of you that haven't listened to it, it's in the back catalog. And uh, the guest was Dr. Janice Webb. And it is a great episode, especially for people who had childhoods that weren't necessarily dramatic, but something was missing. Um, When I heard your episode on emotional neglect, it knocked the wind out of me. It so described what I experienced with my mom from age nine to just a year ago when she suffered a brain injury. She's a different person now, which is very weird. I checked physically abused because my mother told me my oldest brother picked me up and threw me across the room just a few months after the house fire. I don't remember this, although I've always been afraid of this brother. So, dot, dot, dot. Any positive experiences with the abusers? With my mom, yes, some positive experiences, and it does complicate my feelings. Recently, I experienced a sense of forgiveness towards her, and it's lightened my load. With my oldest brother, no. He's always been distant and seemed angry at me, my mom, and sometimes my middle brother. I'm the youngest and the only girl. It's never been a... I've never had a conversation with him longer than a sentence or two. He's never acknowledged my birthday for over 40 years. When my mom had her brain injury, it was really challenging to be in a room with him, but I did it. He seemed to appreciate me and what I was doing for our mom. He's even called me a couple of times, although I'm pretty sure one was an accident. I don't know why he doesn't like me. It's always hurt that he hasn't wanted a sister like me. My other brother is not any better, by the way. I'm weirdly orphaned in some ways. Darkest thoughts. I have fantasized about my husband being killed in an accident. That way the insurance would let me stay in our house. I've never admitted to anyone that I stopped loving my husband years ago. He hasn't wanted to have sex in over 10 years. I brought it up once, but he changed the subject. I think I married a man-child. 
I think about leaving, but never do. Darkest Secrets. Before the house fire, my parents were talking divorce. My father had an affair, maybe more than one, and my mother was too. I was nine, going on ten at the time. I only learned about these affairs later, but one night, just months before the fire, I heard shouting, and when I looked out of my bedroom door, I saw my mother in a chair and my father yelling at her and shaking her violently. It scared me, and I've never told anyone. Also, when I was 19, I spent the night on the roof of a restaurant and saw a guy breaking into an electronics store from the roof. When he saw me, he came over. Turned out it was a guy I went to high school with. We spent the night laughing and talking on the roof until I fell asleep and he disappeared. He didn't rob the store, by the way. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I seem to fantasize about women when I masturbate, but I can also fantasize about men, and that works too. I fantasize that in comforting I fantasize that in comforting a female friend, we get drunk or stoned and have sex. For men, it's usually somewhat like the closet in a public place, or traveling somewhere exotic and meeting someone that makes my face hot. I'm getting better about not feeling ashamed of my sexual situation, so writing these feels like another step in that direction. I don't know why I've felt so ashamed of sexuality as I've gotten older. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Oh, way too many someones I'd like to say something to. I'm such a chicken shit about this, and I don't think I was in my youth. First to my husband, what the fuck, or lack of fuck. I don't understand why you stopped having sex, but as you did, I stopped being attracted to you. You never talk about it, even when I get brave enough to bring it up. I'm a beautiful, sexually talented woman, exclamation point. What gives? But at this point, who cares? To my older brothers, I was just a kid when all this shit rained down on our family. Why didn't anyone help me? Why didn't either of you think of me or comfort me, be interested in me? And now, I don't even like the people you've become, so fuck it. What, if anything, do you wish for? To start over on my own, but with the home I have now. It's my sanctuary. To get out of this marriage and find, and find someone who I can love, have deep conversations with, and have sex till we break a hip. Uh, and you know it's good when a hip shatters. The only thing that can top that is if you look down and both of you have lost both of your legs. That's when you know you were really getting into it. Have you shared these things with others? Hmm. Some of the stuff about my brothers I've shared with my psychiatrist. I've been going for about six months now. I'm still scared and uncomfortable about sharing these things, even with him, the psychiatrist. Maybe I should have found a female, question mark. I don't know. I don't think I've shared much of this with anyone. So it went really well, right? Question mark. It's really important to find someone, whether it's your therapist or people in a support group that you feel safe with. It's, it's so hard to process our shit if we can't find someone to, you know, kind of collapse with. How do you feel after writing these things down? I have a little headache. Also, I feel like I'm sending a message in a bottle. Not sure if it will help. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I've been sitting with my fingers on the keyboard and not knowing what to type. I've never met anyone who shares my thoughts or experiences. I guess I'd say, hey, where are you?
Thank you so much for that. I know there are people that feel the way that you do and are struggling with the things that you do. And it's why I'm such a big fan of support groups. They just saved my fucking life. And my best friends today are the people from those support groups. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Gory Locks. And she writes, During a psychotic depressive episode, I was brought to the A&E in my local hospital. I'm not sure what A&E stands for. I think it might be the television network that does all the Hitler documentaries. That would make sense. That the, that would be the sanctuary for somebody in crisis is to bring them into the editing room where you're putting together a little piece on Goebbels. My mother came with me terrified but trying to keep it together while I cried and kept hearing things that weren't real. In the psych ward, while waiting for the evaluation, a nurse was taking my blood pressure and doing some basic checks when my mom noticed a part of my huge new leg tattoo. She's never been a fan of my tattoos and would normally faint or not speak to me for weeks out of anger and discovering any new ones. But because of the delicate situation we found ourselves in, she had to look at it with a positive attitude and it became weirdly a weirdly nice distracting topic while we waited to see if I'd be admitted to the psych ward. I love the image of your mom seeing a tattoo and fainting. Oh my God. Is that yin yang? Slump. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman, an agender person who calls themselves, I'd rather be Peggy Carter. And their love is meeting a new person who loves an obscure thing that I love too. That is such a great one. When I, when I meet people who have gone down the rabbit hole of the video game civilization, it is an automatic 20 minutes of just excitedly talking about each of the civilizations, which one do you like to be, what are your favorite wonders to build, which edition of Civ is your favorite. Yeah, that's such a good one. Any comments to make the podcast better? Cast more people and things to hell. You don't tell me what to do. I decide who I cast to hell, and guess what? I cast you to hell. Wait, maybe that was your intent all along. I cast you to heaven, sweet lady. And now I bring you from hell, heaven right down to hell. You get a lot of frequent flyer miles when somebody sends you up to heaven then brings you back down to hell. Oh my God. But of course in hell... There's so many blackout dates in hell. And really, how good is the vacation just to another part of hell? This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself It Never Fucking Ends. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He has never been sexually abused, but he's been emotionally abused. He writes, my dad would come home in a bad mood, seething with anger. You had to walk on eggshells. If you 
misstepped, spill milk, etc., etc., you felt his wrath. His anger was intense and took up all emotional space in the house. He communicated things very clearly without saying it. You're a fuck-up. You're an idiot. You're a piece of shit. You're worthless. You can't do anything right. You're not enough. And what a great example that is of the importance of the vibe that the parent gives off. I think a lot of times parents or just people in general think that only their mouth is saying things. But so often, what just somebody's facial expression, their body language, the, the way they're moving their eyes says so, so much. I didn't realize for when I was married for years in my marriage that I had like when when I was not happy, I had like a very, I don't know, stone face that terrified my wife, not for her physical safety, but because I've, you know, I've never been a physically abusive person, but just to be around somebody who is unhappy and stewing. And I had no idea that I was coming across so intense, which reminds me of a joke my friend John Wing used to do. He say, my wife tells me I'm too intense. So I stared at her until she cried. <laughs> Such a fucking good joke. Um, any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes. My dad was a great father in many ways. One good memory is of him playing his guitar and singing Puff the Magic Dragon. <laughs> that is... Now, I didn't know anybody actually did that anymore. But God uh, God bless your dad for digging, digging into the vaults and pulling out Puff. He was such a, quote, nice guy, and the abuse was so invisible, sometimes I wish I had been slugged or molested so that there's something more solid and acceptable to point at. I'm angry at him, but it feels wrong a lot of times. That's a really important thing to process. Um, and I had mentioned earlier in the episode, the, the episode with Dr. Janice Webb, uh, she also has a book called Running on Empty, which is about emotional neglect, and it's... A fucking game changer. Darkest thoughts, blowing my brains out, sexual attraction to underage women or girls, obsessing over attractive women in my life, fantasizing about sucking dick and having sex with men. Darkest secrets, when I was in high school, I babysat a small kid, about three to five years old. One evening, I pinned him between the corner of his mattress and my pelvic area, him on his stomach, me grinding into his butt. He tried to squirm free right away, and I let him free and continued to grind on the corner of the mattress until I came in my pants. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. So many, mostly with a young, petite, exotic woman wearing a short skirt or dress, being rough with her, with consent, excla exclamation point. Sitting on my sitting on my lap in the skirt with her bare bottom coming into contact, wrapping my arms around her and pulling her close and tight, her butt into my crotch, cupping her breasts and her vagina, having sex with her from behind, standing up with her clothes partially on, having power over a beautiful young woman, taking a shower with a beautiful young woman and soaping each other up and grinding on her booty. 
Uh, writing that makes me feel uncomfortable and dirty, but also horny. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my sister that there's a better life out there if she gets help. That a lot of her everyday struggles are because of our parent unresolved shit and our dysfunctional upbringing. That she may not realize, but she's not really living. She's just struggling through, and it doesn't have to be that way. I'm afraid I'll never have a good connection with my sister if she doesn't get into therapy and face her shit. And this version of her annoys me. We're awkward around each other, and it's hard to see her struggling with interpersonal shit throughout her life, at work, and in relationships. Also, I'd like to tell this woman in my apartment building that I think she's beautiful. I can't stop thinking about her, and I'd like to get to know her. A suggestion, if you do, I would not lead off with the I think you're beautiful. Um, not not that that is a bad thing to say to someone, but I think it can be really hit or miss if you don't know that person's humanity first um, because it can be perceived, and often it is, a kind of a form of objectifying uh, somebody. Um, it's a, There's so much gray area in complimenting uh, somebody because uh, it can so easily veer into objectification. It's shit's complicated. What, if anything, do you wish for? Connection. A couple solid friends that I feel comfortable around and can relax and be myself around consistently. A feeling of belonging. Uh, I long for self-acceptance, self-respect, self-love, some fucking confidence for crying out loud. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some of the sexual fantasies with my ex. It went okay. We had great sex sometimes, but there was also an uncomfortable feeling like she was just in it to please me, or maybe I was looking for a sexual object. That, you know, that can be the case sometimes, is somebody can get the feeling that they are being objectified by their partner. You know, and it's not always just sexual objectification. Uh, in my support group, sometimes people will share about um, assigning a magical fantasy quality to their partner and expecting them to live up to it, and then you know, punishing them in big or small ways for not becoming that person that they wish that they were, and that's a form of objectifying somebody. Um, I haven't shared any of this stuff about my sister besides with my therapist. It's hard to talk to my sister about her. She gets defensive and shuts down. Hopefully I'll be able to bring it up using the right words someday soon. I share my wishes in group therapy. We're all in the same predicaments. I definitely get a sense of belonging when I speak up and feel heard there. How do you feel after writing these things down? Tired. It's late. Sick, I have a cold. Lonely, depressed, same as before I wrote them down, but a little lighter. It's a bit of a wake-up call on how fucked up I am. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I feel your pain. I feel your struggle. We gotta have faith. We gotta keep healing. Thank you for that. Thank you. You know, we... we um, We often, kind of the typical survey is somebody sharing about ways that they were hurt, but when people share about the ways that they 
crossed other people's boundaries or violated them, uh, I'm, I'm always appreciative that, that they air that, that stuff because, um, we often wonder, you know, why, you know, what was going through the mind of the person that did this? You know, he, he wrote about that experience when he was babysitting, which was, um, you know, that was difficult, uh, to, to read as so many things are, uh, in the, in the surveys, but I appreciate that somebody who did something like that as a, you know, when he was a child, when he did it, still a, still a teenager, young adult, whatever you want to call it. But the fact that he's in support groups now and, you know, seeing a therapist and working on his stuff, that's, that's what's most important. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lemon. And she writes, I love listening to music with rain sounds at 4 a.m. when I can't sleep. I love collecting books that seem a bit weird. Listening to epic video game music whilst doing chores to make it feel a bit more exciting. When my house plant stays alive for more than a month. When I'm really anxious about something and I'm so close to just not bothering, but then I do and I feel a massive sense of achievement afterwards. That feeling is pure bliss. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Oh, those are awesome. I, uh, I bought two orchids. Um, I don't know, probably a year and a half ago, and they did their typical look awesome for a month and a half and then uh, go straight into the shitter. And somebody told me that they can come back. And now, like, a year and a, year and a half later, maybe? Maybe a year. They're making a comeback. And I'm so <laughs> oddly excited. I can't even remember what color they were. This is... A survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Self-Don't-Care. She is 71 years old, was raised, identifies as gay, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I reported it. And yes, and I never reported it. In third grade, a boy who lived up the road ambushed me on a path I took through woods to and from school. He was in sixth grade. He sat on me and bounced up and down. He ran away when a car stopped on the road. I told my mother and my teacher. For some reason, I had no qualms about reporting him. I think I'm a snitch at heart. I wouldn't consider that being a snitch at all. At 10 or 11, my two-year-old cousin started feeling me up whenever he had... Oh, I'm sorry. That would have been odd, a two-year-old cousin. Very, uh, very sexually aggressive uh, two-year-old. At 10 or 11, my two years older cousin started feeling me up whenever he had a chance. He had discovered that his younger brother, same age as me, and I were playing, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. But with the younger cousin, it was completely equal between us. Flashing back to when I was five or six, this same cousin, the younger one, and I played husband and wife. I was naked, supposedly in the bathtub, when my husband came home from work fully clothed. Where did this come from? Question mark. My mother caught us and was angry and disgusted. A friend of mine came to the door and my mother told her I couldn't come out because I had been bad. So later, when my older cousin started abusing me, I knew my mother would blame me or not believe me. I began to have pains in my vagina, even though there was no penetration from my cousin. 
I promised God that I would be willing to get bad grades if he would only make the pain stop. I ended my passive cooperation when my cousin was feeling me up in the backseat of my parents' car at the outdoor drive-in. Parents were in the front seat. I asked if I could sit up there with them, and they let me. At the beginning of eighth grade, my mother was supposed to drive me to school, but she was making me late. I was extremely anxious about walking into the first class of the year late and everyone looking at me. She asked my older cousin, the abuser, to drive me. As I sat in class, and I barely made it in time, feeling shook up and a little nauseated, it occurred to me that if I threw up in class or had to run out of the room, I wouldn't occurred to me that if I had to run out of the room, I wouldn't feel sick anymore, but would have to come back in and then it would happen all over again. I thought if I told anybody, they would send me to a mental institution. I spent that whole year white knuckling, holding onto my desk and staring at a fixed object to keep from throwing up. Oh my God. I knew I was causing it myself, but didn't know how to stop it. Uh, at the beginning of ninth grade, I was scared to go to school and have it start all over again. My first class of the day was sewing, which I hated. I did start to feel sick, and the teacher had me put my head down between my legs. Then the principal came in and asked if someone would be willing to change from sewing to art. Art was considered part of home et, home ec. I gladly took him up on it, and when I walked into the art room, I felt such a rush of relief because I felt free and it wouldn't be as big of a deal if I had to leave. Also, I loved art. I'm an artist now. It took me many years to connect the fear of throwing up with being driven to school by my abuser where I was already upset and fearful. I suffered from the feelings of nausea whenever I was in the center of a row, oh, of a row in an auditorium or movie or when I couldn't easily leave. Finally, I found a book by Claire Weeks about agoraphobia, and it changed my life because I learned how to float towards the fear and not recoil from it. Um, I'm not aware of that book, Claire Weeks, and that's spelled W-E-E-K-E-S. I'll try to remember to put that in the show notes, but I have a feeling I am going to forget that one. Uh, She's also been... Physically and uh, emotionally abused, Um, I had an assignment to write my autobiography in fifth grade, and my mother wrote it for me and made me turn it in as mine. She was both dismissive of my feelings and entirely obsessed with controlling my life. At age 12, I wanted to enter a local radio contest called Queen for a Day that involved writing why your mother should be queen for a day and win a bunch of prizes. My mother entered her own essay in my name and won. So then we had to drive around to local merchants to pick up the prizes, a loaf of bread at the bakery, etc. The big prize was dinner at a fancy to my family, supper club. That's when I started my silent campaign to never open up to her again. I know I was glowering at the supper club dinner, but she was completely oblivious. My therapist later said she didn't know that we kids were separate from her, hence my diagnosis of narcissism. I don't know if she means means her diagnosis of her mom as narcissism or her diagnosis of herself as narcissism. I think the former. Darkest secrets. I can't think of anything. Uh Uh-oh. She puts that in parentheses. Uh, 
That was for Darkest Thoughts. Darkest Secrets. I once made an obscene phone call to a guy I picked at random out of the phone book. He just laughed and thought I was someone he knew who was playing a joke on him. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Pretending to be asleep or otherwise not noticing that a man is touching me and getting all excited. Oh, and then in parentheses, a willing victim, I suppose, but I feel like I'm the one with power and it doesn't bother me to share this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to and why? I recently ended a friendship with someone I had been very close with for 30 years. It was no one thing. I just didn't like her anymore. Of course, she wanted an explanation, and I couldn't say, I just don't want to be with you. We had had a brief sexual fling, which was really beautiful at the time, but she ended it because she wanted a girlfriend she could, quote, go to the movies with. She lives on the other side of the country. I was stunned. I don't know if that's when my antipathy towards her started. We'd always been close, as I said, but we were not honest with each other. Both avoided any confrontation. She kept telling me how much she loved me, which got old. She wanted to talk on the phone all the time, but never seemed to notice when I was trying to interrupt one of her 20-minute rambling stories. Afterwards, she would say she thought there was, quote, just a noise on the phone. Yeah, that was me. After every rambling story, she would finally peter out and say, I guess I got caught up in my loop again. I finally had had enough and said, why don't you think about that while it's happening instead of apologizing afterwards? It felt like the first serious crack in the relationship that I criticized her. I can't stand when people want me more than I want them. It has happened many, many times. I can't really explain it, but I don't miss her and keep waiting for my feelings to change, but they just don't. You know, that sounds to me like healthy self-care, man. That I have had friendships with people where it was one person just talked all the time and the other person, me, felt like an audience member and I avoid those. It's just not, it is not, uh, and, and I've had difficult conversations where I say to that person, man, I love you, I, I, I care about you, but I feel like an audience member when we talk. And um, that's all you can do. You can't, it would be insanity to try to change them, but uh, I think that's healthy what you did because that's not a friendship, man. Holding court is not friendship and that person if they care about you um needs to be more vigilant about going on a 20-minute ramble i also what if anything you wish for i also wish for things i can't possibly have like wishing i were a poet uh i'm an excellent prose writer or a backup singer i don't wish for things i could make happen i've been depressed lately and actively avoiding self-care I think because another close friend I've known for 30 plus years has terminal cancer. I wish she didn't. I'm so sorry for that. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, my ex of 12 years, over 20 years ago, is now my closest friend and I tell her almost everything but avoid the things that hurt me when we were together. She had a series of sexual and emotional relationships with other women. She's kind of bossy, but I really love her. I feel, and she has expressed the same thing to me, that we're emotionally still, quote, married, even though she's been with someone else for longer than we were together. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels good. I've gone over most of this stuff with my wonderful therapist, and I've been taking Zoloft since 2000. It changed my life. 
The therapy did too, but the medication changed me physically, brain-wise, it seems. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It gets better, as the saying goes. My life was really hard from age 4 to 21, then it gradually got better. Life really did start for me at 40. I'm now old, and except for the, for the pain around my friend dying soon, I feel fulfilled and like I have nothing left to prove. I like myself, which I never thought I would, and don't take my self-doubts or bad thoughts too seriously. Thank you for that, and I love hearing from our older listeners. Um, you know, I love hearing from any listener, but uh, it's nice getting getting a variety of uh, surveys filled out by people. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself KT. And she writes, I'm 26, and my boyfriend of eight years has been living with me in my parents' house for the past three years. We finally reached a point financially where we are absolutely ready to buy a home. It feels wonderful. What? Wonderful? It's a new word. It feels wonderful because we don't feel like we need to leave or we're being pushed out. We just both know this is the step we're ready to grow into. Despite all the positivity and excitement I'm feeling, I know I will face extreme anxiety in the months that come. I mentioned this to my boyfriend last night when we accidentally stayed up too late talking about the future. Without hesitation, he told me, Oh, I know you're going to have several anxiety attacks throughout this, and I am fully prepared to walk you through every single one of them. I almost started to cry, and I hugged him and told him how grateful I am for him. I'm crying again now just thinking about it. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. It's it's so nice when we can be ourselves in a relationship and and then feel that acceptance. And that's the thing that's both scary and awesome about vulnerability is sometimes we're not met in a way that we had hoped that we'd be met. But when we do, it's so worth it. It's such an amazing feeling, that connection. Uh, This is a love filled out by a woman who calls herself Awkward Pulpo, and she writes, I love my husband's snoring. That is a first. He hates it and is embarrassed by it, but I think it's cute. I can't sleep in silence, and when I'm having trouble falling asleep, it's nice to have that little reminder that he is there. Wow, that is is sweet. That is sweet. Uh, I am going to read one more survey. And this is an awful moment. I don't usually end on an awful moment, but this is filled out by, this might be my favorite pseudonym ever, by a guy who calls himself Masturbation Never Broke My Heart. Dude, that is a t-shirt that you need to make. Um, he writes, I've been working up the courage to look into new psychiatrists in my area because I don't care for my current one. My current psychiatrist called me about a med change I'm doing, which has been very difficult. And at the end of the call... They brought up a politician I loathe. I interrupted their praise of this person to tell them I would get upset if they kept going. After the third time they talked about how great this person is, I lost it on them. I'd asked politely twice for them to stop, and they didn't. They were laughing because I was so upset. This sounds like a terrific psychiatrist. Uh, So now I'm laughing at myself while looking up psychiatrists because I put up with this bullshit for how long? Question mark. Someone's got to look out for my mental well-being, and if it's not going to be them, it damn well better be me. I love that. 
I love that that you took a shit show of a situation, a massive failure on your psychiatrist's part, and you are using it. Instead of taking it personally, you're recognizing that that is a shitty, shitty psychiatrist. I hope you guys enjoyed our our episode and um in case you're needing an update gracie is still the cutest dog on the planet um (laughs) i think my favorite thing in the world is when i get into bed and i turn the lights on and for some reason she always waits like 20 seconds and she'll be in the tv room on the couch And then she decides it's time. I don't know if she just needs me to get settled and figure out where the pillows are. But I pull back the covers and I make like this little nest of of pillows by my my chest. Uh, And then I just hear her come off the couch and pounding on the wood floors like a Clydesdale. I don't know how a 20-pound dog makes so much noise running. But she she runs and uh, and jumps up on the bed and then she just comes right in that little nest of pillows that I made for her and leans against me and then just kind of slides down and turns on her back and uh, just rubber belly and all is good in the world in those moments. I love it. Anyway, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck and you're feeling alone, you are not alone. Um, and there is help out there. There is. We just got to, the difficult part is finding it, taking that leap of faith. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I'm still here, despite the thousands of times I thought about killing myself in the past years. Um, it's been a long time since, um, I actively wished, you know, there's times I wake up and I'm just like, oh, you know. Death might not be a bad thing, but in terms of like actively thinking about suicide, it's been years and years since since I felt that way. And I'm glad, I'm glad I, I came out the other side of that and it started with me asking for help. And um, just know that's there for you if you're feeling stuck. And remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.